once it's sold to a, a consumer, the the company's interest in how a user is getting on with that product mm. isn't as important as it is for digital because they're not having to deal with the customer continuously. Mm. It's a one-time sale. It's not a service. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Each Another, a podcast about designing for people and business. My name is Tom Cunningham. I'm a senior visual designer here with each other. And today I'm joined by two of my colleagues, one of our principal designers, Mr. Lawrence Veal. Hey, Tom. And one of our UX designers, Mr. Billy Harney. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about design principles and their role from industrial design to user experience design. And Billy, you gave an internal talk to the team uh, about your transition from years of experience in the world of industrial design uh, over to the world of UX. And I found the contrasts and similarities to be really interesting, so I thought I'd make a good topic to talk about. Can you tell us a bit about how you think UX differs for you? Uh, apart from the fact that one tends to be more physical and the other is more digital, the intention is to create something that people buy into and use. And the way we go about it and the mistakes we make are quite often very similar to we know that from the uh, good user experience design that you know, a product should be straight to the point and uh, have a very simple, uh, understandable purpose. When it comes to selling these products, we tend to overload them. And that's something I find is very similar between the struggles of the digital world as well as the the physical products. Mm -hmm. We all have that product at home with like three extra buttons, which we've never touched before. The the classic meme on on Twitter and and the web in general is the TV remote where you've got something like 30, 40 buttons, all but three or four of them are covered up with some sort of duct tape or masking tape, you know, as a good kind of metaphor for just too much stuff and not actually thinking what's actually necessary. Yeah. Uh, I think one that takes the cake actually is that it's it's a large projector that we have here. It's got two buttons, one for, for turning on and off. And they've basically taken the usual power icon and separated over two buttons. So one button has a circle and the other button has the line. But no one ever knows which one is on and which one is off. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it looks more Language balanced. Language is visually. important, you know, but limited. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things that you mentioned about in your in your talk was when you're in the early stages of your industrial design career was that in one of your first jobs, you sat down and worked with uh, silver silversmiths and, and leather workers while they were prototyping. And you, you found that mixing with the makers was really was really uh, important for your career. Absolutely. I think the benefit you get from just working in close proximity with the people who are actually making your designs is invaluable. Getting to work in a company like each another where we've got uh, our own in-house uh, dev team makes all the difference. Um, mm-hmm. Any questions you have, they're there. And just working continu- on a continuous basis with them is is so so invaluable in other companies I worked with you're nowhere near an engineer and you really notice the disadvantages of that uh, that constant learning and understanding what the priorities of the designer are and the priorities of the engineer are and aligning those two things mm-hmm. is what makes is, is the, the golden rule really yeah yeah so we talked already about how having all these additional features and functionalities and even aesthetics are kind of pushed in there to try sell a product. I remember doing even one of my projects. I was the project was to design a bread maker, and I'll never forget presenting it to the marketing team and them requesting it to have the aesthetics look like it came straight out of a bakery. And you know that that just baffled me because following on from the rules of like the likes of Dieter Rams, I had him screaming in my ear. You know what are you doing? Like this product isn't from a bakery, it's not going to live in a bakery, it's not going to be used in a bakery. It's going to be bought by 
a mom or a dad or something like that and yeah. used in a family home and stored in home storage. Why would I make it look like a bread maker? So that baffled me. But again, this is where features kind of clash with design intent for the user, you know. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Dieter Rams there. One of his cardinal sins in design was the indifference towards people and the reality in which they live. That's kind of the one and only cardinal sin in design. True functional orientated design is the fruit of intense, comprehensive, patient and contemplative reflection on the reality on life and the needs, desires and feelings of people. So actually understanding people and where this needs to fit rather than a marketing message like it must come from a bakery. No, this must sit on a worktop and fit into, you know, you know, covered after use, and that's probably where it lives for most of its life. But maybe not if it was properly designed for exactly. a hu- human consumption rather than selling kind of an, an aspirational ideal of, of, you know, that I will become a professional bread maker. Mm-hmm. The end product then from that feedback, was it was it steered more towards something that looks like it should, like it belongs in a bakery? There was, there was subtle, um, I pushed back as much as I could, but mm-hmm. there's definitely some subtle aesthetic choices that were made mm-hmm. to give a nod to more industrial style products. Right, okay. So when they were saying something that belongs in a bakery, they meant something that feels a bit more industrial yes. from industrial use. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, the other, the other thing that happened, I think it was on my second project, I had presented something that I felt was, you know, really beautiful product, still really affordable to make, good looking design. Mm-hmm. I never forget presenting it to the sales team and their reaction was, well, can you make it look a little bit more shit? <laughs> and I, I honestly was a little bit confused by this statement, obviously. But what I didn't understand then, but I very much understand now, is that there is this kind of structure within brands um, that produce products of, you know, entry level products through to high level products. Mm. And it enables companies to sell different internal technologies mm-hmm. at different price points and applies an aesthetical value to the technology that it contains. So that's kind of why uh, like a, an, an Opel Corsa doesn't look like a high-end BMW or something. Sure, and there's no, and in, in some ways, there's no reason why it can't. Okay, th- some processes are more expensive than others and it, charging that higher pr- price enables them to use these higher cost processes. But you could go pretty far mm-hmm. and make something look pretty good. Yeah. Um, even at even at an entry price, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've I've often wondered that. Like, why don't they just some cars? You look at them and you're thinking, why does that look so bland? You know, <laughs> why don't you yeah. just put a couple of extra curves in there? Or, you know, something that looks more aesthetically pleasing, and it can make the whole thing look more presentable and desirable. Now, I mean, you'd really notice it in car interiors hmm. where you get the base model. Yeah. And everything's just a black plastic. So some of the products that you've worked on, so you mentioned obviously a bread maker there. Some of the interesting stuff that you've worked on, like you've got a lot of experience building watches. I, I actually don't know how many. <laughs> no idea. What's interesting about that is the golden era of watches happened a long time ago, as did many products, where a kind of a recognized pattern, if you like, has been defined. And companies wrangling this same pattern many, many times over, constantly challenging it and trying to push the boundaries of what this pattern is. Mm -hmm. That You know, you have a dial and you have buttons and specific positions, Mm -hmm. but it's very difficult to break that pattern. So you don't think the Apple Apple Watch has made that much of a change? Not really. When it it was released, you could tell that they worked really hard with watchmakers from, uh, I know that they would have done a lot of uh, research with uh, Swiss companies. And you can tell that they referenced historic pieces 
understood what worked, what didn't work. Mm. I think it was Dieter Rams who had some comment about understanding your uh, the history. Yeah, he did. Um, um, or Dr- Henry Dreyfus, I think, he said to look ahead, one must learn to look back. That's probably the, the most pivy quote I can remember offhand. Or the lack of historic interest in many contemporary designers is a weakness. That's Dieter Rams, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah but... I'm quoting your blog post. <laughs> but it was, it, I think it was Rams who said, well, essentially that by knowing your history, you can build upon it and profit yeah. profit from it too. And that's what's happening in the watch industry and it's what Apple did too. You yeah. know, they profited from all that wealth of knowledge. If they went to design a watch for the first time, mm. it would look nothing like what they have now. But look, look into the past, I think is really interesting. I, I listened to a podcast there today, actually, high resolution, they're talking to Jared Spool. And one of the really interesting points is, is an answer that he had to one of the questions at the end of the podcast, which was, where do you see the industry going in the next five years or something like that. Whereas other everyone else kind of gave it a, gave it a go and they were kind of like, oh, I think it's going to go AR or VR. He was like, I'm not that interested. I'm kind of looking at learning from the past. I'd rather, I'm more of a historian. I want to see, understand why we got to where we are now and what's, you know, what has worked, what hasn't worked. One of the examples is like, why did people like the BlackBerry? Why did they change over? What's, cha- what's the difference there? So I think people can be often focused on driving forward and kind of think about the next thing. Oh, AR is going to be the next thing. VR is going to be the next thing, you know maybe, you know, but I don't think everyone's going to be walking around with glasses on their head, uh, you know, throughout their day. I'm sure there's there's definitely business cases and use cases for it, but is it the best use of time to, you know, to constantly be pushing forward without really understanding the past? True, yeah. I think, yeah, the BlackBerry example is really interesting from my point of view because it is that transition from a physical multi-keyed object to something that's digital. Mm-hmm. But that transition didn't happen overnight when a multi-key dig- digital option was available. It was mm. there for many years, but it was the subtle micro interactions that convinced the traditional BlackBerry user to switch from a physical object yeah. to the digital. You, we can't see those things. They, they're things that you deal with in, in today, you know, mm-hmm. not, not something we're going to say, oh, what's what's going to be the future? We don't yeah. know yeah. because it's the smallest little thing can completely be a game can be the game changer you know back in the early 2000s I remember I worked with a guy and he was always on his phone he had like a Nokia 3310 mm. or something like always on his phone but he used to send text messages in his pocket without looking at it he had his hand in his pocket he used to pretend he was doing work this is like in a you know in a retail shop and he'd be, te- he'd be sending text messages constantly he knew exactly what he was doing just put a feel of the buttons could he do that now with a touch screen doubtful <laughs> well actually it features in the departed the movie I don't know if you remember uh, I think it's in the warehouse that um Leonardo DiCaprio's character is texting while his phone is behind his back or in his pocket yeah. to alert the police as to where to come. You can't do that with, with touch, right? Right, yeah, yeah. So maybe he would have been killed a bit sooner. <laughs> um, but no, really, it's really interesting. I I think that's it's very wor- it's worth spending time understanding the past, understanding why things work, why they didn't work, why people changed their behaviour as opposed to trying to, you know, be the, the tastemaker or the trendsetters for, for new behaviours. Or shoot and hope. Yeah. You know, so how does the UX design and industrial design differ in their processes? So, Tom, I can't speak so much for industrial design, so maybe Billy will come in afterwards. But I would see what we do at an abstract level, at least. The first stage in what we try to do is discover. So that's really understanding people, uh, their situation, motivations, current behaviours, how they make choices, uh, what they're actually trying to do, as in their goals. Once we have understood that and what we're actually designing for, and what outcomes we're looking for for those people, I suppose we try and generate ideas. So we're talking about ideating here. So creating lots of ideas rather than a few small good ones. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think Linus Pauling said the best way to have a good idea is to have lots of them. Mm-hmm. And then prototyping is, is the next piece is uh, solutions to what we feel will, will help the people that we've understood so that we kind of get it right before we actually have to build it. Mm-hmm. So moving fast and cheap. Those three things, I guess, are the core of what underpins UX. I don't know how different that is in industrial design. But... Yeah, so there's, there's two processes within industrial design. One is working with a recognized form factor. The other is working with a completely new unknown territory. Mm-hmm. In the unknown territory, there is research done into who may be using it, how they might be using it, and an awful lot of there's an awful lot of similarities with UX. But that is a rare project. They they rarely come along. The majority are marketing led mm-hmm. and you're trying to compete within a very small uh, window um, of opportunity and you're trying to you know, scratch out that your uh, positioning for yourself. For me the exciting part about UX is that we get to work in that sweet spot of bringing in the user and understanding for most of our projects. It's almost completely the flip of, of projects in a way. So when you think about products from like a, a point of view of desirability, feasibility and viability, we often think about that when we're doing digital products. It seems to be a slightly different take on things from industrial industrial design, from consumer based industrial design process mm. products. So you're trying to make something that looks visually attractive. Um, there's a lot of taste making involved in there and it's a bit more subjective. Someone might pick some, something up and go, yeah, I like that, but I don't like this other thing because I like the way this thing looks or like how this feels, which is important. But I think the difference in the UX process, maybe when you're working, talking from a digital point of view or trying to work with how making people's tasks easier or their life easier, the, the, product, the product they're using for their work or whatever. Is there less of a subjectivity in there? Is it more objective? There's so many different ways in which you can solve a problem. You have to back yourself to pick the best one based on a, on a good process. So it's that point of like evidence-based design. So it's, it's, it's testing something. It's the iteration and making sure like, you know, that what you're doing, you've tested it. It's work. This one works. This doesn't work as effective. Let's go with the more effective one. Um, whereas from my understanding on like the, the kind of classical approach to industrial design is make something that's really beautiful, that feels appropriate. And there's obviously numerous considerations, but it, it, it ultimately is a little bit more subjective. Yeah, it's a bit like moving coins around the table. Um, you know, you can be happy with it and you say, yeah, that looks really good. But there's infinite other possibilities. Mm-hmm. It's just a case of which one feels slightly better than, than yeah. the next one. And it's decision making is a lot harder in industrial design because of that subjectivity mm-hmm. and that's far more prominent than it is in UX. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that reflects throughout the lifespan of a of a physical product as well from not just the creation of it, but it's time after it's released. Yeah. Um, once a, once it's sold to a, a consumer, the the company's interest in how a user is getting on with that product mm-hmm. isn't as important as it is with digital because they're not having to deal with the customer continuously. Mm-hmm. It's a one-time sale. It's not a service. Yeah. Um, so I think that for me is the major difference between UX and industrial design is that it's much more likely to be a service than it is a one-time sale. Mm-hmm. And I also think that is why design thinking is far more relevant to U- UX design than mm-hmm. it is industrial design. But obviously in both, there's a, especially if you're making watches, there's a, a, the margin for error, error must be absolutely minuscule. So the rigor and the attention to detail is, are, is really important. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's just a different way of 
thinking you know i've had definitely had arguments over 0.5 millimeter um which to most people they don't see it or see the value of it but it's when you get that granularity uh, within design and you develop that kind of eye, eye for detail that's an important decision to be made you know yeah. um because it could affect other products in the future or it doesn't it starts cannibalizing another product that you have those small small yeah things make a big difference so looking at the digital industry where there's a crossover in, in industrial design i'm thinking of products like google home alexa the, you know the recently announced home pod and stuff is industrial design becoming more kind of under, understated or less obtrusive like purposely less obtrusive in the home is um, i think that it doesn't stand out but it fits in mm. that again potentially will lead to a whole range of marketing-led variations to enable people to pick something off the shelf that ties into their personal choice. Mm. Digital, you can change. Physical stuff, you, you, you can't. You buy it, it's, you're stuck with it. So you need to either offer the range or create something that's so bland and non-obtrusive that it applies to everybody. But then it means you really can have a very limited number of companies working within that area. Um, so I can't see that changing. I can't see all products becoming more unobtrusive. There will always be uh, products designed around individual taste from a physical point of view. Interesting that you said, talked about designing something, our industrial products becoming more unobtrusive within the home. I kind of feel like that's actually happening to UX and digital as well. It's mm -hmm. it's They're both trying to deal with this unobtrusive element. So the speaker fits into most spaces without visually damaging it. Mm. Um, but also the interaction is no longer on a screen or involves too much physical input. Mm. And it becomes more of a voice, voice recognition, voice, voice decision making. Mm. So it's kind of paralleled with the stripping back of interfaces as well, you know, because like when obviously when the iPhone was launching over the first number of years, the skeuomorphic interface style became you know we we've got this really lush screen let's show everything we can show on it let's have all these drop shadows and every all these, these different textures yeah as americans become more mature or accustomed to the style that it's less and less pro they're more interested in you know something that's more stripped back i think so i mean one of Dieter Rams' principles was good design is unobtrusive mm -hmm. so products there to fulfill a purpose right it's not mm -hmm. a decorative object now a speaker can be a decorative object but you judge it by the, the sound quality at least people who design good speakers I mean the design of speakers hasn't changed a whole lot so I think Apple's approach is is, is quite similar mm -hmm. visually it doesn't call attention to itself yeah uh, nor should it because it's just a speaker it needs to get out of the way and do its job really really well mm -hmm. Uh, and as a purchaser of that product and a user of that product, that's the basis on which I would judge it. Mm -hmm. um, not it's a fancy looking, fancy looking speaker. Yeah. You know? Because I mean if if you create lots of fancy looking things, then it's your own personal taste. Mm -hmm. But the world becomes very visually noisy, you know? So there there's this literal visual noise around and that that can have an impact on our emotional and mental well being. Mm -hmm. You know? Um so I think um I think it's it's important to have those sound fundamental principles across product or UX design about that unobtrusiveness. I mean, that's just one of many principles. But one of the things we're trying to do prototyping is not to necessarily find the optimal one, mm. but to throw out all the shitty options, the shitty ideas we've come up with. Mm. Because we will, unless we ground ourselves in what a user is trying to do and then testing what we've created based on what the user is trying to do and test it with them, mm. um, we can fall in love with our own designs. Um, so I think uh, I think design is a very humble profession. That we're not actually aiming for perfection. 
uh, that's fool's gold. We're actually aiming for is to make sure that we design something that meets our users' goals, mm-hmm. and we've made sure through testing that it does so. Mm-hmm. Now there are many ways in which we could achieve that goal, but um, as long as our our approach or our particular design has done so sufficiently well uh, for for those kind of outcomes. Mm-hmm. You talked about like that that fool's gold. I think it's 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 not so much fool's gold. It's more of a f- a guide, a fool's guide, maybe. Um, and I think it's something that we inherently as designers, we all aim for. Um, but you have to make compromises along the way and business intentions are there. You need to align with those technical restrictions are there. You need to uh, be aligned with that. And that creates a framework that you have to work within. Um, the kind of Dieter Ram style product are uh, worked because the organization who is working with already had those ideas before he even joined them. And so he was blessed in some ways that how he saw design were aligned with the people that he worked with. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, Gillette bought Braun out uh, a number of years back. I'd like to know how he would deal with that type of business and to see if he could still produce the same or still would produce the same designs Mm -hmm. in that in that environment. So it's, yeah, it's it's an organizational thing as well. The point that they already had um, design, they didn't ha- didn't just have design. I think they were quite design led. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's back to design needs to be a kind of company wide thing, not just a a team um, or a department that imposes it and who tries to get a, this mythical seat at the table. Uh, it has to be an integral part of. Um, how the company operates and how the company thinks about the products they build uh, and for whom. You know, I think it's really interesting, you know, the UX is pulling in people from all different industries, you know, industrial designers, graphic designers. I mean, I studied visual communications myself. And I suppose looking back now, this standard output or, you know, a graduate from those types of courses would be kind of considered more like the classical designers. Whereas computation, as John Maidis would say, classical versus computational design, where the classical designer might think of this piece that I've got here that I've I've finished is perfect. It's everything's considered. This is a final piece. It's a piece of it's a beautiful piece of, of art that you can take. Whereas when you're dealing with digital products and you know more and more digital industry, you need to think about things computationally. Okay, this is not the finished piece, but it's we're getting there. We're going to be constantly refining this and making it. Uh, refining it and making it better. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it's the the shifting of mindsets is what's really interesting there. Like for me, I'm shifting mindset, mindset, as you said, from producing something that's a really polished piece to something that's continuously changing. That Mm -hmm. for for me is what I'm dealing with. Whereas then we've got uh, people in UX who come from a psych, uh, psychology background. Yeah, and it requires that understanding yeah. of psychology and you know things that motivate people, as well as okay, how do we how do we make that into an artifact? You know, great. Okay, well, thanks very much for your time today, guys. Thanks Cheers, very Tom. much, Tom. Thanks. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations with Each Another on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time.